continuing in our series in the book of Acts. We've been going through the book of Acts now for a couple of months now, and God has providentially placed us in, in, in this time in Acts chapter 8. We're reading from verses 1 through 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to read along with somebody beside you maybe and share. We have all of the scriptures up on the overheads for your convenience. At the same time, I want to encourage you to be, be looking and making sure that what we're telling you is actually in the Bible and is, is from the Bible. And I want you to be able to search the scriptures on your own. In Acts 8, verses 1 through 8, let's read God's holy inspired word together. And Saul approved of his execution. And there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of persecution, you are unhindered. God, thank you that you care for your people. That ultimately our hope is not in this life, but Lord, it's with you. The fact that Jesus, you have been resurrected is our assurance that one day we will be resurrected to be with you. Thank you, God, that you've given us joy here and now in the forgiveness of our sins, that you are no longer angry with us because Jesus, you took God's wrath. God, thank you that you have given us eternal hope, eternal joy in you that cannot be taken away, can never be shaken. God, I pray that we would trust in you, Lord, and that we would be inspired by this account to share our story of joy with others. God, in your great name we pray. Amen. What would happen if persecution like has just happened in the book of Acts came to the city of Greenville? How would you live? How would you respond? Where would you go? What would you do for work? How would you take care of your family? What would you, what would you talk about? What would, what would be on your mind? These questions aren't very foreign for a lot of people today. This morning, many Christians woke up in the Middle East to worship Jesus on this Lord's Day, and they were wondering how they would live, how they would respond, where they would go, what they would do. How about for us here and now? Not just 
in preparation for the day if we ever face persecution. But the question really, it's a sobering one because it's meant to prepare us for how are we living here and now today? How are we living in light of the great news that we have, in light of hearing a testimony of the book of Acts, in light of hearing the testimony of others today who have died in the name of Jesus, how will we live? If the gospel is worth dying for, is it worth living for? Well, I believe that God's really perfectly timed this message in the book of Acts for us today to help us see persecution from His perspective I think God wants to prepare us as a church. He wants to comfort us, to instruct us so that we don't fear, but that we live in joy for Him each day, beginning with today. Look down at verse 1 of the passage for today. It says, and Saul, think of how, how this is beginning. It says, and Saul approved of his execution. We can read past a verse like that really quickly, and we can fail to, to think about that. What in the world? This man was approving of an execution of a Christian for just simply proclaiming his faith in Jesus. And then it says, And there arose that day a great persecution, a mega persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. As we enter into the scene in the book of Acts, we come right in in a very sobering point, don't we? We come right in after the murder of Stephen. Stephen's just been killed for preaching the good news about Jesus Christ. And as we've seen over the last two weeks, we've studied the account from Stephen in the book of Acts. I mean, about Stephen from the book of Acts. He was preaching the good news that, that Jesus replaces the temple. Why was that good news? It's because... That means that he is ever present with his people now. That he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And and Stephen was also teaching that Jesus fulfills the law. Why is that good news for us today? It's because all of us are lawbreakers. All of us have sinned against God. All of us deserve the wrath of God, and we all know it. But Jesus came to fulfill the law so that we might not be condemned. Stephen got the good news, and he was preaching the good news, and... The Jews in that day did not recognize their own Messiah, their own Savior, the the one who had been prophesied for for thousands of years. They were stiff-necked. They refused their own master. They killed not only Jesus, but now they've killed Stephen as one of the first martyrs. And after the beginning, it says Saul approved of his execution. Saul was a young man at the time, we know, and As chapter 7 tells us, he watched over the garments of those who stoned Stephen. Don't pass over the graphic nature of that. Stoning, it was hot. It was a bloody affair. It took a while, a great deal of effort to hit somebody with stones enough times to kill them. So they take their coats off in preparation. They laid him at at the feet of Saul so he could watch and make sure they weren't stolen. And, And we know that Saul was no passive observer He didn't watch in horror as we should and would. He watched up front and personally, and it says he approved of Stephen's bloody, violent, painful execution. The New American Standard Bible, it puts it more clearly. It says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Saul had become a religious fanatic and along with others was persecuting his own creator. And all those who weren't, who followed, followed his creator. 
He wasn't alone, though, right? Saul wasn't alone. It says, in that day there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. It's it's worth noting up until now that there was no church outside of Jerusalem at this point. As we know from the biblical record, Jesus had commissioned his followers to go and to make disciples of all nations and to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And he promised to be with them always to the end of the age. And then in Acts 1.8, we know that the last words that Jesus spoke as he ascended to go to be with the Father, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And then he tells them where, and he says, in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. They've definitely been effective witnesses in Jerusalem, so much so that the Pharisees have said, you have filled the whole city with this message of Jesus. Oh, that it would be said of our own city, that it might be filled with the truth, the life-giving, vibrant teaching about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not yet been filled. Although there are many churches, there are many who are not faithful Christians. At this point, the church in Jerusalem has, has grown to almost half the population of the city. There's twenty to 30,000 people. The regular population of the city was probably 60,000 people at max. Outside of the the different feast times when it would swell to quadruple that. But until now, they've not yet taken the life-transforming message of the gospel outside of Jerusalem. I don't know that they were disobedient. They They were enjoying life in Jerusalem. They were enjoying the spread of the gospel. They were enjoying success. But maybe they were challenged by the difficulty of how in the world do we go out to Samaria, the place where it's full of half-breeds in their minds. How do we go to Judea? How do we go to these other places? And so maybe they became comfortable in the excitement and the growth of the church and what was going on. Maybe they became complacent. We don't know. But we do know there's no plans at this point mentioned in Scripture. But now this great wave of persecution, it arises against the church. And it has a mobilizing effect. It has a deep effect on the followers of Jesus Christ. And it tells us that the apostles, they didn't leave Jerusalem, and I don't know why, Scripture doesn't tell us why they didn't leave Jerusalem. They stayed, the rest of the church was scattered, but we know that it wasn't for lack of boldness because they've already been arrested and thrown in prison and beaten within an inch of their lives. It's not for lack of boldness, maybe it was because they wanted to stay, to care for, to encourage those being persecuted in Jerusalem, I would say it's very likely. Maybe it was, they were staying like A captain would, as he goes down with the ship to make sure everyone is off. Maybe they just stayed to do the hard work of taking the gospel to the hardest place. You know, thinking about this passage, maybe God has placed us in a difficult job or difficult situation, difficult neighbor maybe because God intends to use you there. But notice the words of Luke that he used about where the church was scattered. If, if, you, if you caught that, if you paid attention to that, it says, it says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Luke is doing something here, isn't he? He's showing a direct correlation between persecution and the purposes of God. 
He's showing the persecution is the means that God uses to expand his church and to get his church to go exactly where he wants them to be. The last words that he spoke when he ascended was that you will be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And where now does Luke write they're going to from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria? And later we find to the ends of the earth. There's two really points that we'll, we'll see from this passage, just two main ideas. And, and, and the first one is that Christians can trust God in the midst of persecution. Christians can trust God in the midst of persecution. And then the second point we'll see from, and that's from verses 1 to 3, and the second point we're going to see is from verses 4 through 7, is that we should preach the word wherever we are scattered. Christians should preach the word wherever we are scattered. But the first one is that Christians can trust God in the midst of persecution. On the heels of execution. No one here, I don't think, anyone here has seen a Christian be executed up close and personal. But on the heels of this execution and great persecution of the church, God's using Satan's attempt to crush the church to actually expand the church. Luke's driving home the central theme of the book of Acts, which is that God's plan, it continues unhindered. That Jesus, the risen Jesus, expands his church through the Spirit's power despite any and all opposition. And that's what Luke is driving home here. That's the central thread all throughout the book of Acts. And he's showing that the church there is not thwarted, they spread. They're not, they've not become timid, they're not cowering, they're preaching the gospel. But they weren't unaffected either, they were still sad, they were saddened and they were grieved. And so we have verse 2 so that Luke gives us perspective. This is not some Christian triumphalism that doesn't acknowledge that we have sadness and difficulty and hardship in life. And so in verse 2, If you look in your Bibles, it says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Why why does Luke give us this detail? Typically, when it speaks of lamentations like this, it means that people would grieve for a period of loud mourning for a month or more. As they remembered the victim, they were affected by their death. And so the saints, the, the Christians in Jerusalem, they were affected by the death of Stephen. They lamented it. It was sad And then Luke also gives us the detail to show that it was a godly thing to bury Stephen, that although the Jewish leaders condemned him in stoning, which was something reserved for those who were apostate, it says devout men buried Stephen. This was something that would not have been allowed in that culture when someone was stoned or executed for blasphemy, for disobedience to God. They would not allow them to be buried. And yet it says devout men buried Stephen. And they courageously buried him. Even though the act of these men who buried Stephen, they would have actually been putting themselves in harm's way. They would have, they would have encouraged the scorn of those people who killed Stephen. But it says that they buried him and made great lamentations over them. They boldly were declaring the support of Stephen in, in defense of him. And they were, they were burying him. And I think Luke also gives us the detail to show that it's appropriate for Christians to grieve. It's appropriate for disciples of Jesus to lament the death of the righteous. Last week, I mentioned the persecution of Christians in Syria and Iraq. And in the past week since, the accounts of persecution seem to have gotten worse and more graphic. 
It's not that they weren't happening. We just, we're just really catching wind and seeing pictures and, and video of great persecution of the church in Iraq and Syria. It's deeply grievous. It's right that we mourn and grieve over the beheading of Christian children. It's right that we mourn and grieve over rape and murder of their Christian parents. It's right that we make great lamentation over them. But we also aren't stopped by that. We aren't thwarted by that. We aren't to be cowered by that. We aren't to become timid or fearful by this. It's not unexpected, as we heard last week, that followers of Jesus might be killed even as he was. He told us this would be the case. But it's not right. And it should sadden us and make us cry out to God. It should challenge us also. And I hope the effect on our church is that although we're not experiencing that level of persecution, I saw a picture of a father holding the headless body of his child. We don't know what that would be like, but yet this is meant to challenge us whether we would be willing to die for the simple act of preaching the good news of Jesus in the face of horrific opposition and threats. If we were faced with the threat or, of death or torture of our loved ones, or we would be so bold as to proclaim the truth of the gospel and affirm our faith in the resurrected Jesus. Stephen was bold and he was murdered for it. The saints were bold and they were scattered for it. Persecution is lamentable, but we should be affected by it. But we should not fear. We should not worry. What can man do to me now? He can only take our lives. He cannot take our eternal hope. It should make us long for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It should make us grieve not just for those who are killed, but also for the murderers as well. Who are trapped in their sins, who are blinded like Paul was blinded. You see, Paul tells us we don't wrestle By the way, Paul used to be called Saul, the persecutor, the the murderer. He's the one who says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. You see, our battle is not against people. It's against the principalities and power that are waging war against, against the truth of Jesus Christ. And so we don't take up arms but we do take up our, our spiritual warfare of, of prayer, putting on the full armor of God or clothing ourselves in, in His righteousness, being strong in the faith and no matter what the opposition is that we might face. And also, we need to remember and see that in the midst of this persecution then and now, God's plans are not hindered. We mourn, but we mourn as those with hope. We have hope that God will make all things new. We have hope this is not outside of God's plans. You see, in Revelation 6, Jesus spoke about this and he, this kind of thing. And he says, Those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Who were to be killed? as they themselves have been. There is hope for those who have died 
for the word of God and the witness of Jesus Christ to be made new. There is hope that even persecution is not outside of God's control. It's not unforeseen. This is not taking God by surprise, just like it didn't take God by surprise in the book of Acts when Jesus had told them, you will be my witnesses. This was the means that the church was moved out to be those witnesses. This was not surprise to, to Jesus. It's not surprising today. But there is hope that even though we don't understand it, and we don't understand exactly, God does know how many martyrs there will be, and he ordains their deaths even at the hands of wicked people who are hating God so that God might bring about his purposes. You see, what the church experienced in the book of Acts and shortly after Luke wrote, it wasn't isolated. In addition to this persecution around 65 AD, just a couple years probably after the book of Acts was written, a great persecution broke out in the city of Rome and much of the Roman Empire as Nero would burn Christians for torches. And all throughout the ages, countless brothers and sisters have been murdered for preaching about a risen Savior. Most of you be familiar with the account about five missionaries back in 1956 who were all speared by members of the Alca people in the jungles of Ecuador. The names of those men were Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, and Roger Udarian. They were all elated, if you've ever read the account, when they had the, the final chance to make contact with the Warani people and share the love of Jesus, the tribe. And, and Jim, he radios his wife Elizabeth and he says that We'll call you back in three hours. Well, in three hours, his body was downstream. Later, through the work of his wife and Rachel Saint, the sister of Nate Saint, they moved in to where the tribe was. Many of the Aka and Warani tribe came to follow Jesus. There's a thriving community there today, but everything in the story is not rosy, not for them either. The church there in in the Aka area has difficulties and challenges like every church faces, but they have hope. They have the good news that came about for some really bad news. We have the good news. It's come to us as a result of some really bad news. That's the hand of God is at work from the very beginning in today. We don't know how God might use the current persecution of Christians in many areas of the world today, but we do know that his plans are not hindered by persecution, that God uses persecution to carry out his purposes. And in, in Jerusalem, look in verse 3, our text tells us, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged out both men and women and committed them to prison. The word that Luke uses for ravage, it's the same, use that's to describe, same word that's used to describe a savage beast ravaging its prey, ripping apart, tearing apart its prey and dragging them off. So he's saying here that Saul's like a wild beast and he's ravaging and tearing apart the people of the church. Not an unfamiliar thing in the Middle East today. The church there is being ravaged. It says that Paul entered systematically house after house, and he dragged them out indiscriminately. He didn't even have mercy on women, as might be expected. He dragged everyone off, committed them in prison. Acts 9, 1, it tells us later that it says Saul was burning with desire to put, death, to, put to death the disciples of the Lord. And then later, Saul, who was dramatically converted and renamed Paul, this murderer. By the way, can you imagine 
If you were in the church and this murderer walked in, one, you might be a little afraid. Two, you might be angry. Can't imagine the effect that Saul had. No wonder the disciples were a little hesitant when he became converted. But this Saul who was born again, he became Paul and was forgiven by God and by the, the Christians there. He says in Acts 22, he's telling of what he did himself and, and he says, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them to prison. He wasn't just approving of Stephen's death, he, he persecuted them to their death Families were torn apart. They were left destitute. Children were left parentless. And through it all, the cause of Christ was not hindered. It wasn't because of taking up arms or making false conversions through threat of death. That's not what Christians are ever called to do. The Crusades are a blight. Those are people who were misguided, who did not understand Scripture, who were, were applying their own means and using the name of religion. That's not how the gospel spreads. Verse 4 tells us what the means of expansion of the church, the kingdom of God was and what it is and what it should be. And it says now in verse 4, now those who were scattered went about, what did they go about doing? It says, went about preaching the word. Preaching the word, it's the means by which the church expands and that God's purposes are carried out. And it's the second thing that we can see for us today and for those Christians as well and what Luke had for the the early authors really was just that Christians, Christians should preach the word wherever we are scattered. We moved into our house about a year ago, and we really don't have a yard still. I haven't had time to attend to that. We're still finishing up little details, and probably will be for the next couple of years. But in the backyard, from high up, it looks really green right now. We've had tons of rain. It's been a blessing to us, right? It's been refreshing. It's although it's been there's flooding last night. Many of us were up and and doing things to take care of that. But looking at the backyard, it looks green this morning. It looks very green, but it's not green because there's grass back there. It's green because it's full of dandelions. And my kids think they're pretty. And um, because I let the lawn grow with all this rain, very, very tall, it's, it's full of yellow flowers right now. It's better than the white ones because when it gets those white heads, everybody here is familiar, when the, the little seeds blow off and they disperse everywhere. And my kids like to help that dispersal by picking them up and making a wish. I'm like, no, don't, oh, whatever. And, and they make a wish and the seeds spread. <laughs> and wherever they go, dandelions sprout up, no matter how hostile the soil. I can't grow grass in the hostile soil, but those, those dandelions, they grow everywhere. Um, they're, they're the only thing that grows in the red clay and the rocky soil, but the Word of God, the picture that we have here, the, the church is it's scattered like dandelions. It's been scattered abroad. It's, persecution has come and it's blown the church all over the place. They've been scattered abroad. And whatever we see, we see the gospel is being planted and is growing in the most unlikely places. It's growing in Judea and Samaria where they probably thought it could never grow. And wherever the church was persecuted, they were scattered. And wherever they were scattered, they carried the seeds of God's word with them. And they went about preaching the word. Now, it's important to note that this was not the apostles. And I think Luke also tells us that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem just for that reason. So that we don't think this was only 
the reserve of the apostles to go and preach the word. No, it says the whole church was scattered, the apostles stayed, but the people of the church did what? They preached the word. We don't hear that those scattered had any formal role in the church or that they were leaders. It's not what it tells us. It's not what the text intends. We know the whole church was scattered and the activity of those who were scattered, Luke sums it up as this. He says, they went about preaching the word. Think about how remarkable that is. They were just scattered. They've been persecuted. Family members are dead. Others are in jail. They have lost many of their possessions. Imagine being scattered like this suddenly. Imagine if you and I were forced out of our homes and we had to leave and we had to go to other areas. Imagine a rush to pack up all the stuff in your garage, in your basement, in your attic. It's a nightmare thinking about that. Having to find some kind of transportation and then leaving our homes. Imagine having to try to find a place to stay or, or maybe just hurriedly as you're rushing off thinking, now where are we going to sleep tonight? All the hotels are full because everybody's leaving. Maybe we'll go to my Aunt Susie's door at 2 in the morning explain why I'm there with all the kids in tow and ask if I can stay in her two-bedroom rambler indefinitely. This wasn't easy for those who were being scattered. Imagine looking for a new job back then. There was no monster.com. There was, there was no job.com, snag a job. There wasn't, there wasn't easy means to get employment. There wasn't the internet or email or telephones or yellow pages. Imagine going to a place where you didn't know what was in town. You didn't know who was in town. You didn't know what businesses were there and trying to get a job or sell your wares when you didn't know anybody and set up shop and get the word out. when you, There is no way to get the word out except by you doing it. It wouldn't have been easy living. It would have been difficult. And in, in addition to experiencing persecution, it would have been hard to make a living and being scattered at it. It would have been unsettling. And what did we do for the kids? And what about all their friends in school? And but the early believers, they weren't thwarted. They weren't stopped. They weren't overly consumed by the challenges that they faced. And Whatever they did, in whatever circumstances their scattering found them, here's how Luke summarized it. He says they went about, he didn't say they went about worried, didn't say they, they went about frantically forgetting the gospel because they were too consumed with their jobs and, and life and busyness and school and everything else. It says, no, they went about preaching the word. God empowered them and enabled them through the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And everywhere they went, they went about preaching the word. And I wonder if that could be said of the church today. Is it true that wherever Christians are scattered, we go about preaching the word? Where have we been scattered? Where are we scattered today? I wonder how we would live if we face persecution. I wonder if we're willing to die for Christ in a life-changing message that has transformed us into a new creation. What would we do if we were scattered like this? I wonder how much we get distracted and sidetracked by by normal difficulties and challenges of life when we forget the most important thing that we've been given. New life in Jesus Christ. And it's not only worth dying for, it's worth living for. It's worth scattering. I think why the early church was so radical is that it wasn't daunted by persecution. How in the world was that the case? How were they not daunted and fearful? They saw the risen Christ. They saw that He was over all. They saw that he was more powerful than any persecutors, that all that man could do was take their lives. And they saw the joy that they had 
of knowing they had new life in him. They had hope. They could live forever with him. They could be forgiven of all their sins. They were. And that, that gave them joy and perspective. They counted the cost of following Jesus and they found Jesus more valuable than all of life. Have you counted the cost? Do you find Jesus more valuable than all of life? These are challenging words for all of us. They're challenging words for me. They're meant to make us examine how we live and who we are, what we live for. That life is it's but a breath, it's but a vapor. They could have been persecuted wherever they went, but they went undaunted. Wherever they were scattered, you know, thinking about it, we're even scattered in this church, far from Jerusalem the ends of the earth, really? Traveler's Rest, Anderson? That might be the ends of the earth for some here. <laughs> Spartanburg, Taylor's, Easley, Simpsonville, Malden, Greer, Greenville. Some of us could say that we've been scattered. Could it be said of us that, could it be written of us in 50 years that they went about preaching the word wherever they were scattered? Is that the summation of our lives that we, we were given to in 30 years? We're all children, right? That that we lived for Jesus and to see people come to know him? Will they write that we were consumed with telling people about Jesus? That we were filled with such joy that, that we had to share that he's the only way for the salvation of all mankind? Will it be said that the preaching of the word, even though it was potentially embarrassing and socially unacceptable and at times very awkward, will it be said that that is what characterized us who've been scattered? They went about preaching the word because they'd been changed forever and they saw that the world around them was lost and dying. Dying in their sins, that they were deserving of God's wrath and they saw that there were far more important matters than social acceptance. They saw that eternity was at stake. Jim Elliot once famously paraphrased an earlier writer and he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He wasn't a fool or maybe he was, but he was a fool for Christ, and that's no fool at all. You see, the foolishness of, of the world is not knowing Christ and denying Christ. What appears to the world to be foolishness is really the wisdom of God. We can't go through the two scriptures there, but in 1 Corinthians 3.18, it, it talks about the wisdom of the world as folly with God. In 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is, people should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's the kind of fools that we're to be regarded as. I wonder if we're living the way the early Christians did in that, in that regard. Wherever we've been scattered, I, I wonder. When we face persecution, do we think God's God closing a door? Or do we see that God is actually over all and through all and in all? When what appeared to be God closing the door through persecution was nothing of the sort. Opposition and persecution... They were God's way of opening the door to the spread of the proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one to take away the sins of the world. And so we see in verse 5 the example of Philip, yet another non-ordained, so-called ordinary Christian. Look in verse 5, it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him, they saw the signs that he did. The Holy Spirit was mightily at work in Philip and through Philip and enabled great signs and wonders to be done. And so we see in verse 7, unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed and crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. 
And yet again, we see the risen Jesus at work in the life of a believer. That's what Luke's trying to show us. Persecution is not hindered God's work. It's not hindered the Holy Spirit. It's not kept him back from doing great things in God's people and through God's people. And it's also a direct answer, as we've just seen time and again. In Acts 4, the apostles, they prayed, and this is a direct answer again to prayer. Look in Acts 4. Remember they count back in Acts 4. You can turn your Bibles back to there. Follow along with me. We have it on their overheads, but look down your Bibles as well. It says in Acts 4, 23, it gives the, the account of, of the first time when they faced opposition. It says when they were released, meaning when they were released from prison, they went to their friends. They reported with the chief priests and elders and said to them, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Sovereign means that God is ruling over all. He made all. He rules over all. It says, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They killed Jesus at the hand of God. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and sign as one or perform through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So how did the church continually respond to opposition time after time? There's three times we've seen already in the book of Acts. How do they respond to opposition? They responded with faith in God because they knew that God was overall, just as we can respond in faith towards God, knowing that he's overall, he's sovereign. ISIS and Iraq and our government, we don't, we don't rule, God rules. No raging against God's people can hinder God's plans. Even though the rulers of the earth killed Jesus, it wasn't outside of God's plans. And just as today... Horrific things that are taking place are not outside of God's plan that he can use these horrible bad things for his good, for the good of those people, for the, for the good of the church to spread the good news. And so they prayed that God would look on the threats, enable them to speak boldly, that God would perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. And God answered their prayers again and again throughout the book of Acts. And God continues to answer the prayers of his people because he accepts the prayers of his people just as if Christ Jesus himself was asking God for something. You see, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, not only has, has God said he will never punish you for your sins, he's punished Jesus instead, he also looks on you as having the full merit, the full worth of Jesus. And so when we come to him in prayer and like the disciples did, the, the Father, God, is willing to answer our prayers because it's like His own Son is praying. And, and in fact, it says his, his own Son prays for us and, and the Holy Spirit actually prays through us when we pray. And so the Father's not unwilling to hear our prayers. He hears our prayers. And like in the book of Acts, He's heard these prayers and in the midst of opposition and persecution, it did not mean that God was not answering their prayers. He answered their prayers in a way that was difficult, but He gave them boldness. He gave them boldness, he gave them faith, he gave them hope, and he gave them joy. Crazy, isn't it? 
Before he was killed, Stephen understood that. That because Jesus had fulfilled the law, it meant that God completely forgives and accepts those who place their faith in Jesus. Because he took our place and, and took the wrath that we deserved. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you've not, you've not placed your faith in, in Jesus. It's not an easy believism. But we have a choice to make between counting the cost of not following Jesus and counting the cost of following him. It might mean persecution, it might mean difficulty, it might mean hardship, but it means joy and forgiveness and hope. It means eternal life with him. It means that actually God will change us and enable us to overcome weaknesses and sins and frailties, that God will give us grace and help, that he'll make us a part of his family and, and he'll, he'll give us his enabling. I think the early Christians understood and they lived in the good of those truths as well. So because we see them preaching the word of God boldly, we see them expecting God to be with them and heal them and deliver people from opposition and slavery to sin, and then verse 8 tells us the result of the preaching of the word. What's the result of the preaching of the word, the proclamation of the gospel, the good news? There's joy. It says in verse 8, read it together with me. I, let's just read it out loud, okay? Say, so there was much joy in that city. That's the result of the good news. We don't have to be joyless in the face of sorrowful events and sad happenings. We have much joy. We have the good news. There is much joy in us that we can take to the city. Philip brought Jesus Christ and the result was there was much joy in that city. They had joy because they discovered there really is a hope outside of themselves. Maybe you're lost in hopelessness and lost in alcoholism or drugs or a hopeless relationship or you're feeling like you just can't change. You need the joy that Jesus brings that gives hope to you. They discovered that the great physician, he can heal not only physically, but can make people who are torn and broken and depressed whole again. There's great joy in the good news. They had joy because they heard the message about Jesus Christ proclaimed. And so often we can let so many things rob us of our joy and fail to see the good news of Jesus, who's the greatest cause for joy. If you have hoped in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and placed your faith in Him for, for life, no matter what happens to you, you can have joy in the midst of really crummy things. And sometimes life is really crummy. Don't let anybody paint a false picture of Christianity and tell you that it's all about health and wealth and, and, and having everything rosy. It's not it. But it is about having hope and joy that's lasting and peace that lasts that never goes away. From these verses, we can trust that God will use persecution and opposition to expand His church so we shouldn't fear when we hear a persecution or encounter opposition ourselves or when we hear about it in the Middle East. Really, we can see from these verses, really this is a main idea, a big idea of all of these verses is if you're going to boil this, this passage down, what, what's, the, what's the idea that Luke's trying to get across, that we need to get across? It's, it's that Christians can trust God in persecution and spread His joy by preaching His Word. We, we have an opportunity to trust God in the midst of seeing persecution. And if it comes to us as well, we can trust God in the midst of persecution. And then we can spread His joy by preaching His Word. 
And that's what we're called to do here and now. Turn your Bibles to Romans 10, 11 through 15. It tells us, it says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. That's good news. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here this morning, call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. It says, but how are they to call in him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The man who was once called Saul wrote that passage and carried the good news. The murderer had become the life breather, the life giver. Many years after repenting, it goes to show you, we don't, we don't know who might be changed by God. Maybe even those Muslims who are persecuting Christians today, and we should pray for them. Paul tells us some things about the message he once persecuted people for. He tells us that he, he gives us reassurance that if you believe in Jesus, you'll never be put to shame in him. Even if your classmates or your neighbors or your friends or your coworkers, your boss or your family put you to shame, you won't be put to shame. If you've called on Jesus to rescue from your sin, you can be sure that God's bestowed his riches on you as well. His riches of grace and mercy and hope and joy and peace. Because everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul challenges Christians with some tough questions, and I think we need to be challenged with them today. Here are the questions that God's given us through Paul. So we're closing, really. How are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they've not heard? How are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And then Paul tells us what God thinks about those people who go and spread the word as they are scattered. And he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God thinks it's beautiful for us to preach the good news wherever we're scattered. And I think because the good news we preach brings the joy of knowing God. Not only to us. We have a kingdom that's unshakable, that's undefeatable. If all earthly kingdoms fail, if all of us were killed, God's kingdom is not defeated. His purposes are not hindered. He's unshakable. And though I'm, I'm done preaching for the day, by the way. We're done. But we're not done. Before we dismiss, I'm going to take a few minutes to pray. I left time intentionally. We're going to pray for the persecuted church. We're going to pray for boldness. I'm going to take time. It's appropriate. What did the church do consistently in the book of Acts when they faced opposition? They gathered for prayer. And what did God do? God answered their prayers. Gave them boldness. We're going to take a few minutes to, to, to pray for boldness, to preach the gospel. And I'm going to ask you if you would please stay in the room. Don't leave yet. Please don't stay in the room. Don't leave. Don't go anywhere. But instead turn. I want you to turn around and, and, and pick four to six people and we'll have four things we're going to pray for. We're going to have them here on the screen for you. Here's the four categories, four things I want us to pray for as a church. Thank God that he's sovereign over all. That's where they began in the book of Acts with. Thank God he's sovereign over all. Pray for protection and provision for the persecuted church in Iraq and Syria. Pray that God would grant to his servants to continue to speak his word with boldness, both those being persecuted and then maybe he would ignite that fire in us here as well. And then pray that God would attest to his word with miraculous works and empower his people with the Holy Spirit and that great signs and wonders might be done. So we're going to take a few minutes. we take 15 minutes and then um, 
we're going to end with a song, and we'll go from there. So go ahead and just take a few minutes.